0: Hey good people, this is your N.I. Dom back with another reflection. And this is a personal journal for contemplative people looking to think, grow, and have impact in the world. So hey, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. That's Romans 12 and 2 from the Christian text, the Holy Bible. I'm going to name this episode Scapegoating. And you're probably wondering what does scapegoating have to do with that scripture that I just read (laughs) about God's perfect will. Is God's perfect will scapegoating? Hmm. (laughs) Anyway, um... I attempted to do this, to do this reflection yesterday. Um, I was going to anchor the reflection in a song. And um, my battery died. I was an hour and 20 minutes in. And the battery died and the, uh, the audio did not save. Which was good. Because I went back and I listened to Kissing the Frog because I hadn't listened to it. And I realized that much of what I was going to say yesterday I had already said in that episode. So I'm up at it again this morning. Um, I think really what's, what, what I'm struggling with is I'm in, a, in another bubble. I'm in another season. I'm in a learning curve. And I have a desire to get to the root of it, to get down to the core. What is the core lesson? What is the essence? What is the takeaway? But I think that there needs to be a couple, a few more um, revelations, if you will. I'm not ready to get down to that core. That's why I was having a hard time putting a bow on that last reflection. Like, I just want to put a bow on it. You know, what's what's my takeaway? And I'm not there yet. So, um, I could say so far this season, we are at, this is the seventh episode and I, I really think I'm in a pocket, um, for this season. Last, last year, um, it was about executive leadership. Um, I don't know what this one is about, but it is a, some, it is a thing. I am definitely in a, Bubble. So, we're going to take that scripture 12 and 2, and I'm going to try to find a way to connect it to scapegoating. So, we will see what happens. If you're new to this project, this is a personal journal where I process my inner and my outer worlds. I do so by using personality theory. The two theories that I use the most are the Myers Briggs and the Enneagram, pushing those two systems together. I identify as an INTJ 8. I also identify as an African-American woman from a lower socioeconomic background and from intergenerational trauma. I'm a trained and practicing educator and social scientist of about 30 years. Half of that time has been in leadership. Politically, I lean into tenets of critical race feminism, which basically means that, that I have an intellectual sensitivity to social constructs of power, such as race, class, gender, sexuality, to name a few. This project is unedited and it's unscripted to know more about it or me. Feel free to go to my website at yournidam.wordpress.com. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. And you guys, um, if you are really new to me, you might be a little confused by me reading... Um, scriptures, what I will use, um, not all the time, but sometimes I will use text to anchor my reflections, ground my reflections. Um, And spiritual, uh, sacred text is just another type of text. So it doesn't mean I'm privileging it. And I'm not trying to disparage the text either. What I'm just saying is, it's just a type of text. For me to anchor the reflection okay um, so for the past maybe two months I have been wanting to talk about there are two storms that I'm in two storms on the, the familial level and at work and that feels important to me it has felt important to me and when I've tried to hit the record button, I usually fall into one of those storms or the other. I've had a hard time really connecting them. I think last week I got a little close when I was talking about not having FE in my stack, in my functional stack, and my feeling function that's in my functional stack is introverted and it's tertiary, and how that poses a problem of being with people um especially as a woman there's there are there is an expectation of me as a woman that me having introverted feeling third in my stack poses as a problem so i think last week i got closer to it because in both of because that that challenge of being tertiary introverted feeling shows up with my mom and probably in my family but definitely with my mom and then it showed up in this conversation at work and the conversation at work is not isolated the conversation at work just illustrated the the problem that I'm having at the job that conversation illustrated that okay so I think last week I did a I think I got close to connecting those two storms, the storm on the familial level and the storm on the employment level. But I don't think I'm done. Like, I don't think I nailed it. I couldn't put a bow on it. I couldn't wrap it up. I couldn't, I didn't have an essential takeaway. And so then I've been really struggling like, well, okay, what is the takeaway? What really is the takeaway? Is there something about, what is the lesson? And again, I don't think I'm going to get the lesson today. But I am, I'm I'm hoping to get more of it. Or let me say it, I won't wrap up the lesson today, but I hope to get more of it. I think last week, maybe two weeks ago, I drew a triangle. And in the triangle, there were three points. There are three points because I still have a piece of paper. On one point, I don't even think the point, I don't think the location matters, but let me tell you what's on the paper, just in case it does matter in the future. But on the left-hand side of the paper is the word family. The On the triangle, the point in the lower left-hand corner is the word family. The point in the lower right-hand corner is the word work. And then there's a point at the top. And I played around with that one. At the top was going to be the me. And then, I, and then I threw it away. I was like, I don't think, I don't think that's it. So what I did, I ended up the second time around, I, again, I put family lower left, work lower right, and then at top, I put life and death. And that seems kind of like, like, um, like, um, I, I said morbid a lot last time, but a ver um one an episode I listened to recently that I did I kept saying the word morbid. <laughs> I don't know if that's the word I want, but it feels dark. Life or death is at the top of the triangle there's family, there's work, and then there's living and dying um, but I think for me, at the top of that living and dying is the so what like so, what do you want? To, what do you want to do with your life? It's so one life is short. We all are, we all were born. If you if you're on this earth, you were born and you're you're gonna die. That's just, just a fact. So, what is the purpose of being here? Is the purpose being here when we spend a significant amount of time in family and a significant amount of time in work? And do those two points define our entire existential reality? on earth or in the physical realm right like i don't know i do not have that answer but that was what i was processing that's what that rep- that's what that piece of paper represents and then in the middle i wrote in the middle of the triangle i wrote me like okay these are the points that you're dealing with you're dealing with this desire for purpose for meaning one life right I mean, of course, that's going to be really heightened right now, what, you know, what I'm going through with this particular family member and what I've been going through with the family in terms of life and death in like, events that are catastrophic. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's just significant. These are significant losses. They really have had a deep change in my physical world, my reality. And, they, you know, I mean, it's been a lot. Now I'm not going to go over that, into, but it's been a lot. You've been following this. If you've not, then you're going to have to go back and listen to episodes of the past year. And you will hear it. So. I think. I I just feel like there's a lesson in that. It's an impression, and I haven't talked about an impression in a long time. But I associate the impression with introverted intuition, Ni in Dominus. It's like knowing a thing is there but yet not knowing what that thing is, but seeing an imprint. There is something, there is a lesson here. I don't know what it is. And if I don't know what it is, I can't take action. But I've been trying to bypass the step, right? I've been trying to jump over the the discovery part. And I want to take action. A lot of these episodes, you hear me like, okay, what's the action? This is what I'm going to do. And it's a little premature. Because I don't fully have the meaning. I don't fully have the lesson yet. I think I do sometimes. And then it resurfaces. If it's coming back up again and again, that means I don't have it. That's what it means for me. And I'm very sensitive to that. Like when I go back and I listen to older episodes, which in a a really weird way, it's been very cathartic for me. I went back and listened to some episodes this time last year, like in March. And then I went back and listened to something in like um, October or November of 2021. I'm like, yo, this is the same reflection. (laughs) I don't know how people are coming back. Like if you notice it, just so I want to let you know, I notice it now. I think I wondered it, but I can hear it. It is the same reflection. So what does that mean? Does that mean I'm stuck? Like I'm not getting the lesson, I'm stuck. Or does that mean I'm, I'm having a, a FI sensation right now. So that usually when I have that instant, that sensation, that means I'm hitting on some kind of truth. But what does that mean? Does that mean I'm stuck in a lesson I'm not learning it that I'm on repeat or does it mean that that is my purpose? To to know that, to experience it, to have an intimacy with it because it's something I'm supposed to do with that. This perpetual existential tension. And I was reading that that's coming from the Fi. That comes from the Fi, and a lot of times that, well, from the reading, it's a lot of um, Fi doms. They're so they have this um, sense of unsettledness. Like, there's something that they're supposed to do. There's something more. There's right, and I'm like, okay, I ha- I have that feeling. But what's interesting, and you guys know I'm I'm tertiary Fi, so I'm. This is what I don't like about how we talk about these cognitive functions. I don't like it because we bypass the fact. If it's in my functional stack, I'm accessing that function. Same way an INFP would. I'm just not living there. I'm not lingering there. But it's a part of me. And I think if I were an FIDOM, I would put more. I would prioritize it. I don't until... I don't until I hit stress and then stress comes up. Then I start processing. This is the job. Am I in the right position? What am I doing? I'm like, it's just, oh my gosh, it's kind of annoying to be honest with you. But I think that that's FI related. Now you're a typologist and you hear it a different way. You know, I always say hook a sister up. I'm open. I'm open to learning. Okay. But that's kind of the meaning I'm making out of it right now. So anyway, that's this lesson I've been in. And maybe it feels really heightened right now. And I think this is what happened yesterday in the, me being in that reflection with you all for an hour and a half almost. And then I lost it. Literally I talked for an hour and 22 minutes and the phone died. And it didn't save. And I was like, okay. The reality is that, not the reality, but what I was, what I did in that reflection, it took 35 minutes for me to go and tell you all the journey about work. Say work is in that lower right hand side, right? And I re- recapped it. I went back into traditional employment in 2018, 20 Well, really 2017, but it, I became full-time in it 2019. Um and I went through this whole Overview, history lesson of what, why I was there, how I moved from job to job because every year I've, I've switched to a new job. For the last four years, I have started with a new employer, and there's on one level, on one way, I'm justifying it. It's like okay, I'm I'm leveling up every time I moved. It was a up upward motion, and I was like okay, that's why, that's why I'm getting back to my spot. But the reality was. I was never at that spot inside of an institution. I did leadership. I did school leadership, but it was not what I'm doing now. It's not the kind of school leadership I'm doing now. So that needs to, I just need to tell the truth on that. Not that I was lying to you, I was lying to myself. So that's one thing. And then there's this family, familial history stuff that I've been talking about. And I'm just curious. I'm just curious about the pattern. So the episode I I named Collision, I was coming to talk to you guys about those two storms. I'm in two storms and they're colliding. The storm in and of itself is one thing. The storm at work is one thing. Especially when you put it in context. And it's so funny because in some ways, this storm is more difficult at work than last year. But it's not seriously it's not it's more personal this particular storm is is hitting my sense of safety my deep personal sense of safety last year it was hitting my ego like nobody's business it was an attack on my straight-up ego. And I don't feel like this battle, this storm I'm in is is ego-related as much as it is. Maybe spiritual or just, I don't know, what is it? The id, the ego, the superego. Maybe it's the superego. I don't know. I don't want to put you guys on pause to go look that up. I always get that confused. I should know. The id. Okay, I have to put you guys on a pause because I just feel like that's important. You're not going to tell the difference, but I'm going to pause. One second. Okay, I'm back. It's just been gone for maybe two minutes. It was the super ego. It, uh, so the, it is the um would be the, your instincts. The ego is your sense of reality. Um, your sense of self, if you will. And your, the super ego is your morality. And so I think that's where I'm struggling with the job, this, this, this particular level. Oh my gosh. And maybe the first two years, that was a hit on my, id, I don't know, anyway, that's not, this episode is, I'm not getting ready to fall into a rabbit hole about the id, the ego, and the super ego, we're not gonna do that, um, but that's kind of where, that's been that storm, like the storm on the work side, you know, and, um, so this year, it, it amp, is amp the storm this year is amplified by the storm, you know previous years by work and so I'm getting to a place where I'm like yo you know you can't so initially I was when I was making sense of the struggle at work I was like because you're not in your rightful position you know you've got this leadership training this background and so when I first went back into work I wasn't in a leadership role so I was like well that's the problem that's the challenge You've been trained as a leader. You've got all of this experience, this muscle as a leader. And so, yeah, of course it's going to be a challenge. But uh, I think I'm starting to, I'm not completely, I'm not completely at a place now where I'm like, um, There's a part of me that's wondering if this idea of me being employed in the system as a leader is a problem. Well, if I'm being employed in the system as a leader is a problem, does that mean when I go back to being in the system, not in a leadership role? I can't. Even my heart coach last week challenged me on that when I was like, well, maybe I'll go back to the classroom. I'm so glad she challenged that. She's like, what is that going to solve? Let's go back to that. Let's let's remember what it was like when you went back to the classroom. Very thankful that she did that, because I was going to start romanticizing the classroom because it's something I really love. But there were these other aspects around my leadership training. So the classroom satisfied the classroom satisfy my instructional desire, my love of kids and my love of pedagogy and instruction. But it totally challenges me or my my orientation of my training for leadership so she challenged that so that so okay so either I'm going to think about getting out of leadership or I'm going to think about leaving this system altogether leaving the institution of employment oh my gosh (laughs) that's That's loaded I don't this is where I fell into a rabbit hole yesterday I don't want to do that not not there's something else I want to focus on but there's that and I can unpack that at another time so that's one thing that the this one storm is doing. It's making me question these things about should I be in, the, in, should I be in institutional leadership? Because institutional leadership feels arbitrary. And it feels problematic. And if I can get to the reflection of what I want to talk about, I can explain to you why I think institutional leadership is problematic. And I have one... Or two more levels decline. Like I think I'm not in an executive leadership role. This year, my executive leadership skills are being accessed. And now on one level, that feels good. It looks good. But I'm not in the, I don't have positionality for executive leadership. So it's problematic. So that's one storm. Then the other storm is with, you know, family. And although I don't feel like I've been storming a lot with family. I think that there is some confusion because since the pandemic, my relationship to family has changed because prior to the pandemic, I was just resolved that these are some healthy boundaries I'm going to have and we're not going to blame family, but we're also not going to deny that there are these issues. So we're going to have some healthy boundaries. Then the pandemic occurred and then we're stuck inside and then there's this collective stress, this collective fear, right? And I wasn't in a relationship. So my, I gravitated to some type of collective sense of belonging, collective sense of safety. And that's where the boundaries were obscured for me with family. And I created that. I've secured those boundaries. Nobody did that but me. And then there's been this shifting happening um, in terms of with my sister. I don't talk about it in a negative way, but there has been a a shifting happening with my sister that um, is, is amplified by a number of factors. You know, we just went through this, you know, we lost our father and that was complicated because we had two different relationships with him and his stuff, his his issues. And then my father had two other kids outside of my mom with two other women outside of my mom, not while they were married. (laughs) And so having a relationship with those two siblings, um, my sister and I are approaching that differently. Uh, But because of how close we are, that has not been an easy journey. So that's happened. And then there's been, um, my sister's going through her own liberation. I mean, she's in her mid-40s, but I know how many, how much I grew when I was in my 40s. So, you know, you start getting to your core self. And I'm super excited for her on that, but... What I'm finding is that I'm not my true self with her, because as big sister, I'm falling back, letting, making room and way for her to be her fullness, and I'm not. So again, all of those resolutions that I had before the pandemic, they're they're crumbling, they're crumbling for me. And then you have, and that's and then like, ugh, but I still feel like I was growing if you listen to the episodes of December at the end of December I was just so optimistic so happy and then we get the news that a very 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 close family member is dealing with cancer an aggressive form of cancer Mm. (sighs) yes I'm not even sure if I told you guys that I don't know if I told you it was cancer but it is um, yeah, I don't, even want to, I don't want to linger there, but anyway, and so that in that in isolation, cancer, isolation is scary. and Then trying to support that person, because I'm sure it's even, if it's scary for us, it's more scary for that individual. And then what does it mean to support the person while other people are supporting this person? And now that's what I mean in proximity to those people, right? So there's a lot there. And so that's a storm. So I'm vacillating between those two storms. And they're like, it's like they're coming to a head (laughs) this season. Season six, I'm dealing with them. And when I hit the record button for that collision episode, I wanted to talk about how those two storms were pinging off of each other. To be like like a superstorm. So I I really I'm lingering here because I really I think I need you. I'm gonna hit scapegoating in that scripture, but just really really need you. All. This is this is the piece. This is the real essence of the le- the learning for me. What does that mean? For me to be in two storms and they're like, collide. They're at the same time. I'm not like previous seasons. If I was focusing on one, then I focus on the other. But something feels significant that I'm dealing with both of them right now. What does that mean? Well, I'm the common denominator. I am the common denominator in both of those storms. I'm a part of both of them. What does that mean about me? That's I can't help but to wonder that. I really can't. <sighs> Do not conform to the patterns of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is his good pleasing and perfect will. What is God's will? And I say God in this very um spiritual universal sense we have to come back you know I've talked a little bit about my spirituality in this project I don't lean a lot into it because it's it's still evolving but I don't personify God I don't I just don't personify God and a lot of the stories of God I struggle with when we personify God and I'm no longer at a place in my life where I'm rejecting it. Cause I went through a phase of like, that doesn't make sense. God cannot be personified. Well, I'm at a place now, like, who knows? <laughs> like, seriously, who really knows? <laughs> you know? So I don't even know. I don't even profess to know, but. So I'm saying God in terms of like. I do believe that there are these lessons that come. They come from something. I believe that very much so. Very much so. There are these lessons that come from something. And it 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 pulls me to be uh to be the most and the best I can be. Now, is that is that something coming out of my cognitive functions and somebody else doesn't see it that way because they have a different cognitive stack? Okay. Like I don't feel the need. I don't have a democracy. Agree towards it, like this is what it is. This is who God is, and you—you, you, this is my definition of God, and you have gotta now listen. To, you've gotta believe in my definition of God. Nope, I don't have that at all, at all. And I don't even run this project like this. I'm a free thinker. I'm—I believe I attract other free thinkers. You do you. Boo! <laughs> you just do you. <laughs> and I'ma <gonna> do me. <laughs> and I'm trying to figure this thing out. Okay, all right. So. Let's talk a little bit about scapegoating now, okay? So I'm not going to keep you in suspense. I, I think a part of the collision between those two storms and seeing me as the common denominator, it's situated in scapegoatedness. Oh, so let me give that to you up front. I just need to unpack that a little bit with you all. Unpack scapegoatedness as a shared feature in both of those storms and then um and then connecting it to that scripture do not conform do not conform to the patterns of this world okay i really feel like the reflection is about to start now I have no idea what I was talking about for 30 minutes, <laughs> but anyway, um, so about three weeks ago, my heart coach, maybe a month ago, my heart coach told me about a book that's titled Scapegoats at Work, and the subtitle is Taking the Bull's Eye Off Your Back by John Dykeman and Joseph Cutler and my heart coach said that she wanted to send a, a digital file of, she wanted to scan the first few chapters and send it to me digitally digitally and um, I was like, can you print it because I'm not I don't really want to read anything digitally and so we talked about the like my lifestyle for reading. I could do a lot of reading online, but I for whatever reason, I asked her to uh print, and she did. so I think two weeks ago I got the printed copies, and they've just been sitting. They've been sitting on my desk. I'm sorry, I'm getting a little distracted. got another phone of mine is going off and I'm like, it's my work phone. I'm like, who just sent me four messages on a Sunday? (laughs) So anyway, um, so yeah, so the printout, I've had the printout of the first looks like we have, yeah, the first four chapters. Um, uh, I've been, it was just sitting on like my desk and then I tried to pick them up and read them a little bit this week. I just didn't feel like they didn't like this text. It wouldn't get right into the meat of it. The way the authors wrote this text, it doesn't get right into the meat of the scapegoat. It gives like a story. This guy, maybe his name is John or Jack, and he gets fired. Yeah, his name is Jack. And he gets fired from his job. And so that's how this text starts off. Telling the story about John walking, excuse me, Jack walking through this parking lot with this box in his hand from those pictures from his office and how he's ashamed and angry and he's just gotten fired right and I'm like I don't feel like I don't feel like I don't feel like sorting through that right now like I want to just get right to the essence of what is a scapegoat at work what does that mean so um today I was like just so I tried like three times to read that text to skip over the storytelling the vignettes part of it And I couldn't, I couldn't make sense of it. So this morning I got up and I just said, let's just read it. So I got through the first three chapters. It was really good. And I want to just go through, um, a a couple of highlights with you all. Okay. The third chapter is really the most significant. So I'm not going to even talk about chapters one and two until I, I'm going to get the book. She only gave me a few chapters just so I can, if I, you know, to be hooked and then if I'm, I like it, go get the book for myself. And I'm going to do that actually i 'm going to order it um, so okay, let me read some text about scapegoating at work. Some working conditions are inherently stressful, including some management styles characterized by poor communication, exclusion of workers in decision making, etc and some workers have fewer coping skills and social support to deal with stress. It generally takes a combination of these factors to result in injury. Due to job stress, so that um, they're just talking about this, this higher uh, occurrence of job stress, um, and how people cope with those that stress. That stress um, is by identifying, blaming, isolating, and excluding workers, and that is a process of scapegoating at work. Um, the book aims to talk about how um, scapegoats are identified and targeted by both their bosses and their co-workers. How they are isolated and finally excluded from the workplace. Okay, you guys, I'm going to back up a little bit because I, I didn't, I really should have taken these chapters. And like, um, I did highlight four or five points. About characteristics of scapegoating But I cannot find a basic definition And that's what I wanted to give you But let me give you um, Let me give you some um, I'm going to read some text from the first chapter So scapegoating has uh, a religious uh, hist- uh, mm, I, th- I think etymology is the word And a psychological one So scapegoating has been explored Through religion and in psychology All right um, so we're going to talk about Jack. I'm going to read this last paragraph about Jack. Jack felt guilty now for the real... Um, um, Jack had seen a movie once about how how wild hyenas haunted in... You guys, I'm struggling. I'm sorry. Let me start over. Jack had seen a movie once about how wild hyenas hunted in packs. They circled the herd of gazelles. gazelles Looking for one that was different, young, old, weak, ill. As they closed in on it, the rest of the herd ran on to safety. So, this is a, this is this is kind of like a metaphor of what happens with scapegoating. There's a group dynamic. There is a hunt. There is the location of something. Uh, a prey that is weak, weaker, and on. and once that weak that weakling was identified, the rest of its companions left him. So it has a two, it has a two prong effect. There's a hunting quality where there is a search for the weakling and then there's an abandonment once that weakling is identified there's like an abandonment all right so that's the metaphor i'm gonna yeah i just want to bear with me because i'm going to go through this text and just isolate things for some some concepts for you so we know that humans are social animals we're social beings okay As social beings, we, we survive in groups. And that survival is based on a group dynamic of being in the group. In order to be in the group, you have to establish someone as outside of the group. Or someone's as outside the group. The odds of survival are greater when individuals are connected in a larger organization. Exclusion from the group is a powerfully stressful event for an individual who will make vigorous and even frantic attempts to rejoin the group. Individuals who are unsuccessful in rejoining may exhibit disorganized and maladaptive behaviors. That's not necessarily relevant for today's discussion. This connection between group membership and survival accounts for some of the emotional power of scapegoating. To be ostracized, isolated from the group, greatly increases the individual's vulnerability. So I'm going to go to my, um, I have, like I said, four characteristics of scapegoating. One I already said, a group membership is necessary for survival. And so that group membership is based on a likeness. And that likeness can be overt Like, it's clear, like, we have this overt likeness. Like, we all wear a badge. We all wear a uniform. Um, we all work in a particular physical space, right? So, there is something that establishes a likeness amongst the group. And it could be overt, something as clear as a uniform, a badge, or a location of work. And sometimes, oftentimes, that group membership that likeness is established by something that's subtle. Like language, dialect, values, mission, shared background, relatedness. And then that shared relatedness gets translated into a perceived superiority. That that in that group group membership gives an individual, a sense of I'm superior to the person who's not in the group, I'm superior to those outsiders that are not a part of the group. The people on the outside of the group, both well, they're weaker and they're lesser than they are an outsider. Okay, so again, number one, the one dimension of scapegoating is that there is this group dynamic with insider and outsider features, likeness, and superiority. As well as differences and inferiority okay another aspect of scape uh, feature of scapegoating is power and you access the power of the group by way of group membership but not not just group membership of belonging but behaviors so if the group has determined that somebody is a a weaker link, and that weak link is really an outsider, then the group decides to, to um, descend on that person in a particular way with certain behaviors. Well, when you also, when you mimic those behaviors or you adopt those behaviors, then you take on the power of the group. You start having power from the group. So even if you don't agree or that's not your nature it is all of our natures and want to, to want power for survival all right a third characteristic of 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 scapegoating going to the group is that the group has a set of rules spoken rules unspoken rules and unconscious rules and this is a fascinating distinction I did some kind of, this is, this relates to some of my studying in my dissertation. We say that in this group, we believe in X. That's a spoken one. It can also be unspoken, never said, but it's understood. I come from that environment. It's never said, you can't, we have to make our family look good, but that's the rule. You do things to make the family look good. You do not do things to make this family look bad. That's a rule that we all know, but it was never stated. That's an unstated rule. So that's powerful. But then the one that's unconscious, that we don't even know that we're we're fulfilling a rule, that we're monitoring a rule, we're policing a, a, a rule, we don't even know that that is a rule. It's significant. And I think about this affinity group at my job. And I was like, okay, what are what are the bases of membership? What are the bases of belonging? What are the agreements? They were really, really upset with me when I required them to write down those working agreements. They're like, well, we're not a work group. No, you're not a work group in this space. But because of the time you spend in this affinity space, it didn't translate in another space as though you are a group, you are a collective. And there are rules to that collective. They were very angry with me when I asked them to put those working agreements together. Now, as as a social scientist, I know group dynamics. I know it. But I didn't have the time... To go locate the literature for it. I, you, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be honest with you. I'm having some real breakthroughs about this job as I'm reading this, been reading this text. Okay, so there are these rules, spoken, unspoken, and unconscious. When the rules are broken, so when the rules are broken, it is a pathway for the scapegoating to begin. That's not the only way. The scapegoat can be identified just by being weaker, or different, right? Weaker or different from the group. But the scapegoating can also happen that if you have a perceived likeness. We think you're a part of us. You look like us. You value like we value. We have a shared background and then you don't follow the rules. Then you will be scapegoated. And this is what I often think about uh White allies People who are white Who want to do racial justice work When their peers Who are not allies Try to bring them in In this fictive kind of kinship Way I've seen it time and time again Then, And they don't follow They don't get brought back in To the right side of the group Back into the fold They are then p- punished They are definitely penalized This is what I always tell people when they come up and they tell me they're an ally. I'm like, if you are an ally, what are your battle wounds? Where are your scars? Because you cannot be an ally and not have any wounds. Because when you truly are an ally, the people who are not allying with you are going to punish you for not following the rules of that other group. You left the group. You You are going to have scars that will... Remind you that you left the group and will remind other people what happens when you leave the group. And then the last feature of uh, scapegoating that's just that I wrote down here just for today is that, um, um, it's functional that it, it actually, even though it seems negative that you're going to target somebody who's different, you're going to target somebody who's weak. The function of it is by it creates cohesiveness, cohesion with the other people who are in the group, other people who are following the rules. As a reminder, this is what happens when you don't follow the rules, right? And it gives people a greater sense of belonging. Look, I didn't get kicked out because I'm, I'm belong. I, I am still superior because I'm still a part of this group and we're in this group together. We're superior together. In the first chapter I'm not going to go try to find it But they use the scripture They talk about It's in Leviticus Where uh, the goat Two goats are brought in So this congregation um, There's some kind of collective Sin that they've done Uh, And so they bring in two goats And they cast a lot And one goat Has to be slaughtered And then that Blood is then for atonement And then the Second goat all of the sins Get placed on that second goat And they take that goat out into the Wild and wilderness and Release them and releasing them out Allows him to live But he then carries All of the sins Of the group and he cannot Come back So that's the religious Origin of scapegoating I've studied scapegoating in the past, never from an organizational level, but I've studied it from the past from a a familial lens, from family systems theory. And so how I've understood scapegoating prior to reading this text is that when somebody in the family doesn't play the part, mm there are two, if they don't play the part that they're supposed to play, then they're scapegoated. They are then... Problematized and alienated, but which which is fascinating is that they can't be completely pushed out. This is what I've learned: the scapegoat can never really be pushed out. So they there's like a, a blend between being um, slaughtered um, and then also carrying the the sins of the of the family. Because once that scapegoat is really, really pushed out, the family then needs another scapegoat. And that's basically what this article is saying that happens at the organizational level. In the organization, there are problems in the organization, structures, culture, values, whatever. And instead of the organization uh, attending to the root problem, it then targets a Person Or a group Because a group can be scapegoated too It targets that Individual and starts problematizing The individual and then the individual ha- Has to leave Okay Fascinating stuff I'm, I, I hope this wasn't too disjointed I'm pretty sure I'm going to come back Because I'm going to get the book and I'm going to finish reading it Go check the book out for yourself though And I've talked about being the scapegoat in my family. I've also talked about being the problem, the, the golden child. But based on this reading today, I was never really the golden child. Because one aspect of scapegoating is that you have to be special. There's got to be a special recognition. You have to have a, some kind of status. Uh, some kind of elevated status. And then you get pushed out. I'm serious. I'm so serious. This has been this is this is a game changer for me because I can look back and see when this has happened to me four times. Not I don't usually experience this at work though. Work has usually been a safe haven for me, but I can see it, and I see it in the makings right now. I had a conversation on uh, Friday that was scary, actually, because somebody who's professed to be an ally is starting to problematize me. She's been slowly doing I've been seeing it maybe three weeks where it's overt, but I've seen it longer through her behaviors but she never would put words to it. In the last three weeks, she's starting to slowly put words to in making me the problem. And this is where I, I'm going to have to meditate because you know, your reasoning for trying to make me the problem is only going to go as far as I let it go because I'm pretty savvy about my, my, my work. So you can't really problematize me. When you do, I'm I I'm coming back. And in me coming back, now the person is saying they are feeling attacked. <laughs> Literally, the person said to me and then now here's the second person. See, this is the second person now that's problematizing me in this job. Well well, it's not the second really is more than that, but like in this overt way like i'm harmed way in tears you are um what did she say you are um you know she said i'm tired of being uh attacked i said how am i attacking you when you something as simple as you changed my calendar you took our time from 9 to 12 and made it 9 to 1 and you didn't ask, you didn't check in with me to see if that was okay. And on the flip side, when I've tried to extend our time, you've told me, you've indicated that I need to get your approval to change times, It your your respect for changing time. So there have been these little things. So I, when I question, I say, hey, next time you change, I, said, I simply said, next time you change the time, let, let's talk about it first. That was a problem. So, um, I can give a list of things, but I'm not because I already know what I already know what's happening. Um, something small early, early on Wednesday, and I was talking. We were I was talking, and I kept losing the word uh, co- cohesion, cohesive. Co- I said, um, I'm forgetting the word. I think the word was co- cohesion. I think that was the word. And I kept forgetting it. And one of the one of the young ladies in the group, somebody that I talked to privately all the time, she was like, Gosh, get it together. It's just a word. And this is what she said in front of everybody. I mean, it wasn't it didn't feel good for me that I was forgetting the word. But it definitely didn't feel good that she'd said that. So I was like, oh Okay, you know like cuz I knew if I would have pushed back on that, everybody would have seen her that that her act as fun and my act as aggress- aggression. Nobody saw her that act that she did as aggressive. So I I knew I knew the rules, right? I knew the unspoken rule, don't touch that. So I didn't. So this and I and I didn't go to her afterwards. I would have done that in Nevada. I would have gone and said, hey, can we talk about when you did that? I didn't touch it. Because I knew that that had a function. Sociologically, I knew that that behavior had a function to it. And I didn't want to reward it by giving it attention. And sure enough, about four hours later, I got an email. Apologizing. And I just said, she said, I was just playing. <clears throat> I was just playing with you. I was just teasing. That's what she said. I was just teasing you, and I said, "No worries." I said, um, "I come from a family that teases, in a, in a, as a coping strategy, that's unhealthy. So I'm not a big fan of teasing, you know. So I just, I said, I'm just not a big fan of that." And then her her, her response was, "Well, I come from a family that's serious, as though to me that communicated if you're going to be in this group." then you're going to have to be comfortable with teasing because teasing is a way of not being serious. So while you don't like teasing because of your background, this place, we do teasing because no one said anything about it. It was an an accepted behavior. There's some other pieces in this article that that's what happened with Jack. Jack came in. He was detailed. He was decisive. He was moral. He All of these things that he was praised on, they turned that and they flipped it on him because he was not supposed to use those qualities to disrupt the unspoken rules of that organization. He was supposed to use those qualities to reinforce the unspoken rules of the organization. It's so, I mean, that's, and because he didn't honor those unspoken rules. He then became scapegoated. And it just takes you, the vignette takes you through like the things, the subtle things that the organization started doing. It wasn't just wasn't just management that did it to him. These were his coworkers and his subordinates. So the person who wrote the book talks about, they talked about making this observation in their work over years. And then realizing once they kind of started studying organizational scapegoating, they realize that this is something that if people knew how it how it worked, then people could look out for it. So I, I'd love to make this case. I mean, in order for you to really understand my, my greater takeaway with this reflection, you're going to have to understand what scapegoating is. Now, I will say that when I worked in predominantly, well, I was going to say, when I worked in diverse spaces, multicultural spaces, I wasn't scapegoated. I only have experience being scapegoated in predominantly white organizations. And that was part of the conversation on Friday. The the young lady who uh, is, she reports to me, she said, you didn't come into the organization doing race work the way other black women have in the past. I said, well, what does that mean? Well, you don't talk about it directly. Your your way of doing race work is veiled. She she used the word veiled. Uh, again, I said I'm I need you to give me more. I need I need more. You're just not you're not explaining. So, it looks like you're not doing race work, but the reality is, I am learning that some of the things that I'm doing. I'm learning that some of the things I'm doing are because I'm white, but you never told me that I'm doing it because I'm white. Do you hear that? And you damn right I didn't because I know survival in that space is, I know that my lifeline, my life, my longevity in that organization is limited. If I would have gone in there being overt about race. So I have not now, it hit me, it, see, I'm, I'm caught between a rock and a hard place. With the, the, the BIPOC staff, that's what they wanted from me. They wanted me to come in and be overt with v- the vocabulary around racism, calling people racist, calling something. And I didn't do it. I didn't do it. And I don't have to do it. Because underneath racism is about, there's a power, Racism exists because of a uh, um, because of, of a particular relationship with power. I know that relationship I understand power so I don't have to call it racism I don't have to call it sexism I don't have to call it heterosexism I don't have to call it ageism I don't have to call it classism I don't have to call it that all I have to do is make it make the power structure visible that's all I have to do and I don't even have to do that. Overtly, because most people haven't studied power in that way. But it's something as simple as saying to her, you know, when I was asking you to change, to give us more time on the calendar, you, you basically said it didn't make sense. Repeatedly, you told me it didn't make sense. So I had to fall back. I said, but not only did you change, have you initiated a change in <clears throat> our time for meeting? You didn't even have to ask me to do it. Whereas you, with I trying to change the time, I had to ask you, and I'm your supervisor, and I or I said, you know, I'm really just not your supervisor because I said there are things I've been asking for me. Like I said, first of all, I've been trying to build a job description with her. And she's been pushing me off. I didn't know she was doing it until she said it to the two other directors a couple of weeks ago. She outwardly said, yeah, when she asked me to do things, I just don't do it. And then the other two directors said, well, why don't you do it? Oh, it's about power. You guys, I wish you could have seen my face when she said it. So I'm the only person of color in that space. You had uh, two other directors and then you had this particular um, staff member. And they were like, the other two directors were like, wow. I'm like, in my head, I'm like, no shit's right. Wow. What do you do with that? That she thought it was perfectly okay to tell my peers that I've given her some things to do. And that she decided to not do it because it was about her power. Fascinating. She was right, though. But all up until then, it was an act of gaslighting on me, like. I asked her to do this. I have a right to ask her to do something. She's not doing it. Why is she not doing it? What's going to happen when I call her out on that? I had to go through all of that in my head for her to just simply say in front of my peers, oh, I don't do it. I'm not, I don't do it. I just brush it off because of my power. (laughs) It was fascinating. It was fascinating when she said that. Um, I asked her to, um, another situation, I asked her to, I said, I don't know the things that you're working on. I said, I don't know the other things that you're working on. She said, why do you need to know that? I said, well, I'm supposed to do, uh, I'm supposed to do your supervision, your review. She didn't like that. Well, I don't want to have to tell you what I'm doing because it's going to feel like I'm being micromanaged. So when I brought that up, she starts crying. That was harmful to her. I didn't yell at her. I didn't curse. I didn't swear. I didn't belittle. I just was like, I'm not sure what that means. I said, am I not your supervisor? So... Yesterday, excuse me, Friday, she said to me that she realizes that the way she's been functioning with me has been about race. And that while I didn't, and I allowed this to happen, I didn't call it out. I didn't call it out as race. So, and that's different. She's othering me, making me different. Because I didn't call it out. Like, I don't know why I would have to call it out. I said, well, if I would have called it out, I would have had to do all of the work of packaging it, naming it, and giving it to you. And we know that learning happens when we deal with the cognitive dissonance and we internalize and we process. So that's why I didn't call it out. And it's not for me to call out. I don't feel like it is really my job to say, "Hey, you're not doing X, Y, and Z," because I'm a black woman and you're a white woman. I don't feel like I need to do that. Now, if you come to that conclusion on your own, then that's that's your own learning discovery. But it it just really left me. It just it just it it I don't I can't even explain. And so when I take that conversation, here's a situation I have a right and a responsibility as a supervisor. And I took this, I took it, I said, hey, oh, and there was another thing that, um, something else happened. And I was like, oh, I really wish you wouldn't have sent this material out. The girl tells me, oh, well, when so-and-so, I see her, um, when she asks me to do something, I, I do it right away. I don't do that for other people. I do it for her. So I took that comment to the other two directors. And one of the directors said, what sounds like to me, she's saying, she doesn't see you as her supervisor. Yo, you know, I'm, and this is what I've been saying the whole time. Didn't, I don't have to be a supervisor. Take me out of, take me out of that role. Because to be in that role, people don't want me in that role. But there's just, 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 there's a, they don't want me in that position of power. So there's this thing that they're doing, right? So I don't have, I got to bring closure. I don't really have time to make the case, but there's relevance for me. Like I see this group acting, this group action. So the group, the group, I got positioned in this organization in a position of power. And now there is a shift happening to problematize me. When you look at the trajectory, there's a a chart that um, somebody sent me a month ago, and I shared it with the organization. What happens when a woman of color comes into a predominantly white organization? It was a chart, a pathway. It's a pretty consistent pathway. I can tell you exactly where I am in that pathway. I can see it. And when I shared it with the organization, they were like, I don't understand how this, is, how this keeps happening to us because of other women of color that have left the organization. We do all this studying. How is it? <laughs> it's not funny. How does this keep happening? Because of the scapegoating process is not about a vocabulary lesson. There's a need for you all to feel safe as a collective. And in order to feel safe as a collective, anybody that does not reinforce or reify your power, they get othered, they get problematized. And then there's this unconscious maneuvering to move that person out of the organization. That's research, you guys. I've been thinking about the psyche of, a, of what it means to be human. There are the emotions. There's the there's the emotion, there's the body, but there's the psyche. There is a psychic element, a psychic realm. We don't talk a lot about it, but there is that realm. That's how you can have group movement, and there's no never a word spoken. There's never a word spoken about how this is supposed to work, but it works. This is how animals move about together. So that's kind of where I'm at. I can see like, you know, I think prior to this conversation with her, I actually felt like I was in the group. But how she talked to me Friday, I clearly got the message. You're not of the group. Um, And so that's what this book is supposed to do. It's supposed to tell you how to identify when you are either being scapegoated or when you are doing the scapegoating so that you can, you know, do right, do better. So I see that as the common ground between both of those storms. And what I really think, and I don't have time to do this today, I think like what causes me to be scapegoated in both of those spaces. I don't have FE. And if I had FE, I'd be in those spaces doing, acting more to be part of the group, listening to the rules, following the rules, right? My NITE doesn't do that. My NITE isn't about identifying what those rules are to maintain it, I'm futures oriented. moving people forward to what is the next possibility not what already is that that would be your s-i-t-e so it is what it is and this is not the first time like i said this is and and i think because and this is the other thing like there was another article somebody sent me about um black women black female leaders as the pet of the organization, you get hired and you're expected to be the pet. You're supposed to make them feel emotionally good. And when you don't, you're the problem. That's all of this, you know, and, and it's weird. Like, how, just like with my heart coach, sending me those book chapters, that chart, that diagram, somebody sent that to me via email. This other article about black women leaders as the pet, I didn't ask for any of that material. That they didn't come from the same person at the same time. The universe has been sending it to me. Right? Coincidentally, these this information. And some of these people I'm not even talking to. Yet this information is coming to me. So I feel like this is the lesson. Now I don't know what I'm supposed to do with it. I really don't. Well, I have because I mean I I gotta be in the matrix to live, to eat. So does that mean I'm supposed to confront it? Does that mean I'm supposed to be the perpetual scapegoat? You know, Jesus was, this article talks about Jesus was the scapegoat. Dr. Martin Luther King was a scapegoat. Gandhi, like these people who see a better way of doing things and don't, who don't conform to how things have been, they get chosen as the person, as a sacrifice. And whether that is a physical life or death or physical as in being able to pay your bills. And that's what I spent a lot of time talking yesterday And that episode that, that didn't get saved. If I don't play the game, it will impact my, my survival. So then I'm like, okay. <clears throat> and I think part of this, and I'm, I am closing here. I think part of this is my eightness as an eight I see the social world I see the social layers of power and I'm not interested in playing that and so then I'm like okay as long as I'm going to be in a leadership position I'm going to be expected to play that game especially if I'm not in the executive lead position so there's a part of me that wants to go back and like well we're not going to do leadership Because if I have to use my leadership skills to maintain the status quo, that doesn't, I'm not going to do that, doesn't make any sense. So I'm going to finish reading the book just to see what the texts say about how you maneuver that. You know, what what are some strategies you can use to not be the scapegoat? But a part of me is like wondering what is the spiritual lesson for what is that what does that mean for me you know my sister has a philosophy my sister says every 3 years she has to move her positions she changes jobs every 3 years Ugh. maybe that's maybe I need to adopt that philosophy i think i told you guys this already maybe i need to adopt that philosophy so that would mean if I can make it three years, we're we're sending out a year. We're rotating every year. I'm I'm going to keep doing it. I'm probably going to have to leave out of my city, which is fine. I just I do believe that this is a puzzle that needs to be put together. This is a code that could be cracked. I do believe it's a code that could be cracked. My question is, how much time do I want to invest in that? I, I actually would rather write about it and help other people to see it. But I guess this is the other thing. I knew about scapegoating, but only from a familiar place. I never studied scapegoating in an organization. Although I understood group dynamics, and although as I'm reading this text, I'm like, yep, yep, you know, I could connect it to other texts that I've read. But this is the most succinct uh, uh, argument about what happens when you don't go into an organization and you don't make that dominant group feel good and that dominant group it doesn't matter if they're in a management position or a subordinate position. you have to make that dominant feel good and good and here's what's also fascinating about it. If you have another subgroup that's not of the dominant group. You still have to play the game because that subgroup has learned that its survival is in making the dominant group feel good. So if you don't, and I'm not a part of either of those. I'm not a part of that subgroup. I've been talking about, I talked about that last week. And I'm not part of the dominant group. So then what am I going to do? And I don't care. Like that's, The ultimate part is like I don't have a calling to go in that organization and change them. I could care less. I just want to be left alone. I I experience it in the job. I experience it in the house I live in. I experience it when I go do karaoke. All of that, all of that's whiteness. All of it. And if you, in the when if they hear me, and I know they do. Cause they listen to me they would be angry about that like they don't they, the dominant that group doesn't like the the power group whether they're right whether they're christian whether they're straight people demonizing queer people right whether they're able-bodied people demonizing disabled people it doesn't matter whether they're affluent demonizing poor people whoever that dominant group is they don't want to be called out on it Because at the end of the day, they want to feel good. They don't want to acknowledge that they have a problem, which is why they find a scapegoat to atone their sins and then push it out of the community. You guys go check out that book. Go check it out. So, I have to figure out what I'm going to do. And, um, because there's a definite pattern. It's a definite pattern. Um. Yeah, I wanted to wanted to get to the end and have a bow for it. I wanted it there to be a bow, but I don't know. I genuinely don't know what it is. So. I'm gonna to continue to process it, and I will continue to come back and give you installments of it, but that's the that's the thread in both of those spaces it's it's the it's it it really does connect to what I said last week, and I'm really gonna close here I am not f it I'm not getting in there I'm not being a part of the group I'm not doing what the group needs to do needs to feel good. So does that mean I have to go find the right group? I gotta go find the right group to be a part of. and well, maybe that's what it means. Well, how I've been feeling like just put me in a little bubble. I don't have to be a part of any group. Right? That's and that's actually kind of how I've been functioning. When I get off that Zoom call, I'm in my house. I'm not. I'll go for a walk. I'm not even going anywhere. I go to the, I walk. I go to the grocery store, and I have a standing appointment with my heart coach, and that's it. I have very little desire to interact in a world where people are trying to maintain a status quo. I don't have a desire for that. So. I know I said I gotta find my people, I gotta find my people, but I don't get paid, that finding my people don't, it don't pay my bills. They don't pay my bills. Sometimes I feel like I'm more and more a, 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 a self-preservation aid and not a social self-preservation aid, but anyway. We'll, find, we'll figure it out. I'm going to take this reflection. I want to process it. Thank you for listening. If this reflection has had any value for you. Please give it a heart. If this conversation about group dynamics, group atonement, um, power dynamics, um, obviously scapegoating. If any of this relates to a conversation you've had in the world, please take this link and share it with those participants. If my moving about in this Reflection. I think I did pretty decent. I didn't fall into that many rabbit holes. I think you had the first 30 minutes where I was trying to set up the two storms, right? I was setting it up. And then I think the other hour was about explaining this, this information about the scapegoat scapegoats at work, taking the bull's eye off your back. Um, that's the text. If I'm moving about has caused some randomness and you, I'd love to hear it. You can find me on my website at yournidom.wordpress.com On Twitter, Dom one A lot of articles have been shared on Twitter, so go check it out. Facebook and YouTube, Dom. I do have a, fa- a YouTube video that is in progress. I was finally able to upload, uh transfer it somewhere so I can get it converted. There's a whole process that you had to take an audio, make it a video, but So I was able to get past the first major hurdle um, that was tripping me up last week. I was having some tech problems, so I got past that. Now I just need to do the converting and the uploading. So that'll be up soon. But Facebook and YouTube at YourNiDum. Let me give you your assignment. I think I want to ask you to pay attention to your participation in the psyche, the psychic dimension. Like when has there been group movement, group agreement, group cohesiveness in the absence of stated rules, stated or unstated, because it can be unstated, but it's clear. But when you don't have rules at all and you're like, how are we, how are we forming as a cohesive group? That means there's a psychic, there's a psychological dimension to it. And I would, I want to ask you to think about when you've been a part of group cohesion when there were no rules. Group cohesion when there were no rules. That's all I got for you today. You guys, it's been a pleasure hanging out with you until I come back. Be well. Bye.